0: Welcome to episode 76 of the Dason Digest. In this episode, which we're calling Ending Vap, Is Vaporizing Antibiotics the Answer? Jeanette Bouchard and I will review a recent paper from the New England Journal of Medicine that looked at aerosolization of amikacin in an ICU population with some prolonged durations of ventilation. Uh, Welcome back to the podcast, Jeanette.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here and glad to be discussing a topic that has been getting some questions around our sites here. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I've been getting lots of questions about whether this is something we want to implement. So it's probably a good idea that we take some time to drill down. Do you want to quickly go through the study for everyone?
1: Yeah. So a little bit to kind of set the stage about VAP. There are um, a, a number of different methods that have been published in the literature, as well as guidelines that can be used to prevent VAP, such as minimizing sedation Um, improving physical conditioning, minimizing pooled secretions, elevating the head. Um, A lot of these are more physical and nurse-based preventions. However, um, there was a recent meta-analysis that looked at evaluating inhaled antibiotics to prevent VAP. Um, This meta-analysis was published in 2018, and it included mechanically ventilated patients, and they looked at studies over a really big time frame. Um, And it ranged, the six studies that they looked at ranged from 1972 all the way up to 2013. So there was a very big time jump in a lot of those studies. Um, And they saw that there was a reduction in occurrence of VAP with these inhaled antibiotics, which led um, the authors of the paper we're about to discuss to head down the trail that they headed um, and so when looking at our VAP rates, uh, this study was a French study, and we'll get into a little bit more of the details about how they dose the drug and things like that. But it being a French study, it is important to recognize that there is a, a difference in VAP rates from the United States um, and then from France. So about 1.9 to 38 um, VAP per uh, VAP infections per 1,000 days of mechanical ventilation is the US rate. And then over in Europe, it can exceed 18 per 1,000 days of mechanical ventilation. Um, So there is a little bit of a difference. So when looking at these rates, as we work through the paper, just keeping in mind that our rates are much smaller. And so maybe our numbers needed to treat might be a little bit higher than what we're gonna look at here in this paper. So, starting with how this was designed, it was a double-blind, randomized, controlled superiority trial in 19 ICUs in France. Patients had to have mechan- had to be mechanically ventilated for at least 72 hours in order to be enrolled, and they were not enrolled after 96 hours of mechanical ventilation. They also could not have severe renal impairment or renal replacement, chronic kidney disease, um, or an extubation scheduled for 24 hours were kind of the big exclusion criteria that I noted. They were randomized one-to-one to to receive placebo or inhaled amikacin, and it was stratified by trial center, as well as the administration of systemic antibiotics on day of randomization. Um, Nebulization was performed daily for three days in both groups with a vibrating mesh nebulizer filled with amikacin 20 milligrams per kilogram ideal body weight, And then subsequent nebulizations were not performed if the patient was extubated or had a um, clinical defined AKI episode. I do want to specifically hone in on the 20 milligrams per kilogram dose of amikacin they used. Um, So if you look at some papers, you can find this dose. Um, I looked at, there was a paper a few years back that looked at different serum levels when using these higher inhaled dosing and I found when you use 40 milligrams per kilogram, you do get a pretty substantial amication serum level of around eight um, for a peak. And so using these high doses that we aren't typically used to here in the United States can prove to um, get some systemic levels, which is the whole reason why we use inhaled and anti- or we want to use inhaled antibiotics in the first place is so you reduce that systemic exposure. But when you increase the dose like that, you might get a little bit more systemic exposure.
0: Yeah, and I, I think it's just really important to highlight and remind everyone that while we have inhaled liposomal amicacin here in the U.S. Um, administered under the brand name Erycace, you know the dosing of that is 590 milligrams a day. And when they looked at it, they gave on average 1,600 milligrams a day of amikacin to these patients. I just think that that's it's, it's just a huge difference. And I know that since this article and the summaries of this article generated so much interest across our network to say should we go and implement this throughout our ICUs today, we have to really think about this is not the US aerosolized amikacin that we're talking about. It's really a much higher daily dose that have a lot of implications that you've already brought up, but yeah, I was stunned when I saw those doses.
1: Yeah, and they aren't using the um, the lipolized amikacin. This is just your standard amikacin, it's sulfite free. They just um, diluted it with normal saline in, in the IV room kind of thing. Absolutely. Going into our primary outcome, so the primary outcome of this paper was first episode of VAP from randomization to day 28. Um, At first episode of VAP required a positive quantitative bacterial culture in a pulmonary sample, and at least two of the following, so hyperleukocytosis or leukocytosis, leukopenia, fever, or purulent secretions with a new infiltrate on chest radiograph. They, When they were going through their statistics, they set out an expected rate of VAP in the amicasing group of 6% and 12% in the control group and saw that they would need a sample size of about 850 patients in order to reach power. Um, Important definition would be the VAP definition that I just went over. Possible VAP was also um, included in some of their secondary outcomes. And so this was possible ventilator-associated pneumonia in the framework of ventilator-associated events, um, and the way they defined ventilator-associated events was patients presenting with an infection with a ventilator-associated condition and a positive culture on respiratory specimen. And so um, they had a few definitions that led them to their uh, consistent definition of actual VAP. Of note, they were encouraging the investigators to just, anytime they suspected even a little bit, um, that they might be there might be a VAP episode that they write it down they get the labs um, and then they send it in and then a blinded investigator would look through all of the possible VAP episodes that the um, primary the site investigators wrote down in order to determine if there was true VAP um, with the specific episode so it was double checked by a blinded investigator um, and that cut down the cases by about fifty percent I think when I was looking at the article. Going into the results, so this was the time frame for the study was July two thousand seventeen to March twenty twenty one. So note that this was during COVID, and they did include COVID patients. They did not exclude COVID patients. They screened a lot of patients. Um, Six thousand four hundred and nineteen patients were assessed for eligibility, and this was just their patients. They took that had at least forty eight hours of mechanical ventilation. Uh, And they got it all the way down to 850 patients. So that's about an 87% exclusion rate.
0: Yeah, Jeanette, I just also want to point out that, so that was 6,400 patients who got to that 48 hours of ventilation, but that was 6,400 patients of over 50,000 patients that were in these 19 French ICUs during the period of the study, which is very impressive to me. And again, since our specific ask today is, is this something we should start adopting it's certainly not something that we would come in and widely distribute throughout an ICU. It's a very targeted, honed in patient population um, of certainly less than 10% of all ICU patients that we're seeing in, in these French studies.
1: Yeah, very big number that they started out with. And then most of the patients actually from that 6,400 got excluded because they weren't even mechanically ventilated for greater than 72 hours, which was the actual inclusion criteria. So um, most of these patients were not mechanically ventilated for long enough in order to even be eligible for this. Um, At time of randomization, 78% of the patients were receiving receiving systemic antibiotics. There is not any further details about which antibiotics patients were receiving nor a breakdown between the different groups of just broad categories. Um, We just know that most of these patients were on some sort of systemic antibiotic at baseline. And if you look um, at the uh, admission diagnosis for a lot of these patients, it was either infection or respiratory failure. Um, and so a lot of these patients are probably on antibiotics for their infection that they came in for, but we don't have further details, which the pharmacist in us is very upset about.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Jeanette and I spent a lot of time talking about that in preparation for the recording. Yes.
1: Um, It was notable that 81% of patients in the amicacin group and then 83% did receive all three nebulizations. I think when I was looking at the specific methods section that said they didn't need to get the subsequent um, doses if they were being extubated so soon afterwards, I was a little worried that we would have a low number that received the full three, um, but actually 81% did. So that's good. Um, Like Libby said before, the mean daily dose was 1625 milligrams nebulized, over 47 minutes, which is a very long nebulization period. If we think about our ERA case patients um, that we treat, it's about no longer than 30 minutes in those patients. It's typically around 20 minutes. And so this is a fairly long time to nebulize. And then they also had a specific way that they were um, nebulizing through the ventilator. And so this doesn't seem like a very general Uh, methodology that we use here in the United States. They had a lot of training through the protocol with the nurses. And so something to keep in mind to pay attention specifically in the ICU um, that you are nebulizing appropriately. Most patients um, had similar SOFA scores, SAP scores um, between the two groups. So they were fairly similar between the two groups, even all the way down to the ICU days of admission, Um, And so with that, it's a pretty um, good look at um, direct comparison between control and amikacin. When looking at primary outcomes, the first episode of ventilator-associated pneumonia developed in 62 patients, or about 15% of the amikacin group, and then 95 patients, or 22% in the placebo group, which was statistically significant. Um, the first episode of ventilator-associated pneumonia after randomization occurred at a median of about 10 days um, after uh, randomization in the amikacin group and then nine days in the placebo group. So um, the authors do note that they weren't powered to investigate death or length of ICU stay, but um, the results did not find a difference between mortality or ICU length of stay or mechanical ventilation um, between the two groups. Libby, do you have anything else to add in terms of results before we kind of dive into a couple of discussion points? Um, Those are kind of the highlights, the biggest things being there was a difference in ventilator-associated pneumonia. However, there was no mortality benefit, nor was there an ICU length of stay benefit, nor was there a ventilator uh, days of therapy uh, benefit.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I guess I'd also add that when you look at other secondary outcomes, like the ventilator-associated events, et cetera, uh, there was a slight favoring, but not not enough to really. Um cause us to want to implement that for this either. Um, I think that something else that really struck me is they did sort of pivot from their primary analysis from just the incidence of VAP in their two groups over to that time to event analysis. Uh, They said due to some underpowering, but they had, you know, pretty robust rates of infection. They had a big difference between the groups. And so I thought that was pretty interesting that they pivoted on their analysis um, post hoc.
1: Yeah, I didn't completely understand why exactly they did that. Like like you said, their, their rates were almost double what they anticipated. So normally when that happens, you don't think that uh, pri- meeting your primary outcome will be super um, difficult. But I guess they pivoted for unexplained reasons. Yes, um, interesting, certainly. <laughs> and then... We were talking about this a little bit, but there was a larger number of patients with steno um, on their microbiologic specimens, as well as there was a 0% acinetobacter in the amicasein group, and then 3% in the um, placebo group, which was also interesting, which kind of leads us back to information on those systemic antibiotics Um, Was there a difference in specific coverage that some of these patients were receiving where it might lend the placebo group to grow out things that maybe weren't covered by their systemic antibiotics?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I know they did block randomization, so there should have been equitable distribution between the groups by site and, you know, including the various strata they use, like whether or not the patients were on existing antibacterials. But because they allowed so much standard of care per the different ICU protocols, and the facilities they were working in. I also was sort of interested in inter-facility differences, which there just wasn't uh, any reporting of that.
1: In terms of other uh, points that I kind of wanted to touch on. So with their primary outcome, Being involving sputum culture, there was, I was questioning a little bit about is amicazin just sterilizing, you know, the upper respiratory secretions, and they do touch on that with a few of their other definitions, which kind of root out um, the patients who might have just been Having that because of speedum cultures. So it's likely not to cause a huge difference here. But it is a consideration, especially since you're using such a high dose of amicacin and in nebulizing it for an hour, um you would think that the upper airway would at least be pretty clean of any amicacin susceptible bacteria <laughs> or amicacin intermediate bacteria, for that matter. <laughs>
0: And as you brought up already, you know, um, it's possible So many of these patients were on systemic amikacin as part of the protocol, um, just by absorbing it because of their pulmonary administration with those high doses, you know, being on a systemic aminoglycoside was an exclusion criteria. For the protocol, so you could not enroll. But I wonder how many of these patients we ended up having detectable concentrations. I know we see it when we do some inhalational antibiotics and low concentrations at much lower doses here in the U.S. So it's sort of interesting to me. And and um, Jeanette pointed out when we were talking about this in planning. You know, there's no way for us to know because uh, investigators, everyone was forbidden from obtaining amicacin serum concentrations <laughs> during the study.
1: Yes, and for 48 hours after receipt of amicacin. so. There was <laughs> there was definitely no way you were going to see unless it was lingering for longer than that. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, the other note I wanted to kind of touch on is their VAP rate in their control group was 22%. Um, again, kind of like I touched on in the beginning where Europe does have a little bit higher of a VAP rate than the United States. Um, 22% is a pretty high number, I think, for most institutions in the United States. There may be um, institutions that are up that high, but for the most part, and I think just anecdotally, Libby and I were talking about our different sites, and I'd, I don't know if many of our sites are really up that high, um, but looking at the number needed to treat for that 22% is about 14 patients in order to prevent one VAP, and then if you're looking at potentially having a, a, a baseline vap, VAP rate of even 10%, which is half of that 22% in probably closer to where a lot of the United States are, although I think some of our sites might even be as low as like 2 to 3%, um, your VAP number needed to treat to prevent one VAP is 30 um, if you go down, down, down to a baseline of about 10%. So if you're thinking in terms of that, you would need to treat a lot of these very specific VAP patients in order to prevent one VAP episode. Um, and we don't even know if this truly prevents a lot of the reasons why VAP is bad, which is mortality and um, increased length of ICU stay and things like that.
0: Yeah, Jeanette, you know, I go out to a lot of the sites and I'm often at the infection prevention meetings. And I have to say, I'm usually seeing now that we don't have VAP anymore at our sites. So maybe this is not a needed therapy. Of course, I say that somewhat joking, um, but definitely I agree with you. The The rates that they report are certainly not things that we would find tolerable in most U.S. hospitals.
1: Yeah, I, I think you would have a pretty um, big black mark on your joint commission <laughs> survey or your uh, DNV accreditation survey if you had your VAP rates that high. <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, All right. So
0: yeah, thanks Jeanette. So going through, is there anything else you wanted to point out in particular? I think you've hit some some great points and I, I really hope that those listening understand that certainly an intriguing article it it does leave some remaining questions. I think you know it's it's nice to see some supportive, uh, technically non-systemic therapies for prevention of VAP, which remains a lingering question out there. Um, but I think this one leaves a few more questions and answers, especially you know let's not forget that when we're talking about VAP, we are also very worried about pseudomonal infections. And with the new CLSI breakpoint changes, you know, would amikacin be the right drug for us to use in this setting? I don't know. You know, you're giving it locally. We're not depending on systemic administration, but still it it just surprised. I was like, oh gosh, we aren't even going to be reporting amikacin susceptibilities to pseudomonas outside the urine anymore starting next year. So um, that also I struck me as a little bit interesting
1: it was it was interesting that they chose amikacin in the first place a lot of the the studies that that 2018 meta analysis looked at they actually used gentamicin um in a lot of their studies and i'm not 100% sure why they decided to go the route of amikacin maybe their susceptibilities just looked better so they decided to choose that um but like you said a, a lot of times tobramycin is probably the one we would reach for when we're thinking of pseudomonas
0: absolutely well, thank you, Jeanette, so much for reviewing this article. I hope our sites find this helpful. Um, and we hope you all tune in in two weeks for episode 77, which will actually be our last for calendar year 2023. Um, so until next time, this has been another episode of the Days on Digest. Thank you, Jeanette.